Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. This morning, we'll look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, and uh, we're going to go through um, our text this morning. I want to know if you've ever considered this verb, the verb to grab. We use it all the time, right? Hey, kid, go grab me a napkin. Or you go get a napkin because you got Nutella all over your face. (laughs) Uh, Don't grab my cookie or else. Uh, There's so many... Things that we say, go grab this, go grab that. But listen to one of the definitions of Webster's Dictionary, which said, to obtain something without consideration of what is right and wrong, either by force or some other kind of method. We use that word, again, all the time. Hey, Ben, go get me a donut. You know, go grab me a donut. You know, we, we do it. Some of you have been taught to wait at the dinner table and to not grab anything until you're served. In our text this morning, David was presented with the opportunity to take the throne that he had been appointed to and anointed for by Samuel. But through the process, David will withstand that temptation to not take the throne and to not grab something which was only God's to give. David waited, he trusted God to order his steps, and in so doing, he honors God. And church, we have to do the same thing. We've gotta follow his lead on that, that we wait in and through Jesus Christ. Verse one says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. I then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the shepherds, by the way, where, the cave, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And David said to him, Here is the, excuse me, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed." So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is so good and encouraging for us today. All the things written down from the past, Lord, you have meant them to teach us, to inform us, to encourage us, to strengthen 
our faith and our resolve to always stand in Christ and to trust you. Lord, we cry out this morning with thanksgiving for your constant gifts of mercy and grace. And I pray our time in this one chapter of this one book would lead us to the rock that is higher than any other, the rock that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray this in his name, amen, amen. Well, if you're Saul and you're out there having defended Israel against the Philistines in chapter 23 going into chapter four, you might be in the big show, uh, in the TV show on CBS called Big Brother, where they always say, expect the unexpected. That's kind of what Saul is. He comes back from battle and having to deal with the Philistines, and he hears the word again that David is hiding out in the wilderness. And Saul, if you've been reading this week through chapter 20 to chapter 25, you'll know that Saul is going absolutely nuts chasing down David trying to find him so he can kill him and get him out of the way, to end any threat to his throne or to his line of leadership. And they've been playing quite the game of cat and mouse, hide and seek, as wherever David goes, goes Saul is surely to find him. When you look at it from David's perspective, he's been chased from one place to another. And now David and his men find what they think is a safe place in the inner part of this large cavern around the Dead Sea area. And Saul being in pursuit of David, was sidetracked. Now, again, he's back. Expect the unexpected. For David, he too is expecting, has to expect the unexpected because he didn't know Saul was gonna show up. He knew Saul would be out there chasing him again, but he didn't know it was gonna happen like this. Saul has his 3,000 chosen men of Israel. David has a ragtag bunch of guys about 400, somewhere maybe between 400 and 600 in number. They're not the chosen men. They're the unchosen that have joined forces with David. And they're hiding out in the inner part of this cave, unbeknownst to Saul. And yet David is gonna find or be faced with this, this huge temptation. This temptation to end Saul's life and to take the throne. Now, Chapter 24 is kind of a lighthearted moment. I just have an odd sense of humor, I know. But there are some awkward moments in Scripture, and this is one of those. How many of you went back and read in the story of Judges, when we went through Judges, the story of Eglon and Ehud? Anybody? I had two hands to see it. You have to go back and read that story. Then you'll have the same sense of humor as me, okay? And we'll all be on the same page. Saul goes into the cave. He needs a little privacy. That's the humorous part to me. He goes in, unbeknownst to him, is there, there's an audience of about 400 to 600 men sitting back there, and one of them happens to look up in that moment, and he says, somebody just came to that cave. Who is that? Who is that coming in? Oh, that's Saul. Saul, hey, hey, look, Saul's, well, don't look, but that's Saul over there. Saul stepped out of his camp, away from his men, away from his protection, as he was supposed to do. That's what they were commanded in Scripture, to step away from the camp, to take care of business. Unknowingly, he walked right into danger. But in, in verse 4 is where we find that David is confronted with this temptation. Look again at verse 4. And the men of David said to him, his men 
saying this to David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So we have David's men, Saul's men, they're out of the picture. They're out there in the sheep pens and they're hanging out. Saul's by himself. David's with his men. They see him come in. David's men see this as an opportunity to kill Saul, to take the throne. They ascribe this moment as God's action, God taking action to deliver David's enemy into his hands. Saul goes on in, starts taking care of business. What a strategic blunder. David, this is your chance. This is your moment you've been waiting for. God has delivered him right into your hands. They see this moment, this event, and the circumstances that they're encountering, that they're experiencing as an indication of the plan of God. They all know what David, the newly appointed future king of Israel, should do. And they're all telling him, this is what you should do. David, it's your moment to seek revenge. Take it. Take the throne. I mean, we might say the same thing. I mean, if, if we were in a situation of something like this, if ever the circumstances would clearly point to the will of God, it would be this moment, right? They're all saying, God has promised it to you, David. Here it is. Come and take it, brother. Let's go. Take hold of it, David. Grab the throne. And the truth that we find in this, really, though, is that it is so easy to confuse both our circumstances and our desire or our dreams with the will of God. Have you ever been thinking about buying something new? Maybe a new truck that'll tell you when to drink coffee. I don't know. They do that now. I keep saying that. And one day when it's 20 years old, I might be able to get one. But you're thinking about something like that, and you get a piece of mail, you get an email, you see, I mean, because Facebook's always listening, so you see the ad pop up, right? And it gets you thinking, oh, that must be a sign. I can remember getting, uh, you know, that desire to want something new, like a new truck or something, and you're driving the old beater, the old 84 F-150 that's a rust bucket and barely holding together with baling wire and WD-40, and you get that flyer in the mail, and somebody's offering you 10 grand for it, and you believe it, like, whoa, look, they promised 10 grand for that old thing. I'm going to get me a new truck, right? It must be a sign from God. My want has been fulfilled by this fire. They're promising, oh, it must be a sign. It must be God's will. Oh, man, how many times do we get suckered into that? Clearly, our dreams, our desires, our circumstances, God can and often will use those, but that alone is not a good guide to figuring out the will of God for your life. Because they can often be deceptive. You will be in the will of God if you will use the word of God to guide you. When the Bible will take priority in your heart, in your mind, and you're daily renewing your mind in the word, then you will rightly interpret and understand desires, dreams, circumstances according to God's word. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse two. 
Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's talk about that for a moment. In this in his book, The Four Wills of God, Dr. Emerson Egrets gives four verses or passages in the New Testament where it is expressly stated, this is the will of God. And I put that book title and his name in your notes so that if you'd like to, you can go grab that and read it. I have a copy of it, and I'm still going through it. I'm going through it multiple times, but he shares... Through this, the four, these four, four verses, and here they, here they are, and you'll have them on the screen so you can fill out your notes. But one, the four wills of God. The first one, believe in Jesus Christ. John chapter six, verse 40 says, for this is the will of my Father. It's Jesus speaking, this is the will of God. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is God's will that everyone who looks at the Son would receive eternal life. Believe in Jesus Christ, it's God's will, okay? Second, abstain from sexual sin, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sanctification is the journey from sinfulness to holiness. Living in sin, we come to Christ, he saves us, he cleans us up, but then there's a journey through the rest of our life of a process of becoming more holy, becoming more like Christ. That's the journey of sanctification. It's quite the journey, and it's challenging because of the, all the worldly things that we used to love and give our devotion to that are not holy, that are sinful. He calls us to let go and keep our eyes focused on him and his kingdom. Specifically here in verse 3, the word of God says to abstain from sexual immorality. You wonder why the church needs to stand for what she stands for. You understand. God has not called us to a way of worldly sin and sexual desire. He has called us, as he designed it to be, between the husband and a wife for life, that sexual relationship. Nothing outside of that. He has called us to that. That is his will. The third one, give thanks in everything. Whew. I'm going to study this one a little bit more. This is where I'm at currently through this study I've been going through now for several years, but at verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Where I'm trying to figure out is if verse 16 and verse 17 of chapter five relate to verse 18 as well, where it says rejoice always and pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I'm trying to figure out if those first two things also relate to this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But give thanks, whether it's good or down, up or back, we're always giving thanks for God. But the last one, we see three, number three in David, okay, in his psalm. And we'll, get, we'll finish this morning with one of his psalms that he writes when he's in the cave. But I want, to, I want you to see number four, submit in doing right or submit in doing good. It depends on which translation you're reading, same word. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 2, 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I think number four fits in quite nicely with David and the circumstance that he finds himself in. He's anointed king, we know that. But for David, this is what Henry Blackaby called a crisis of belief. What is he going to do in this moment? Will he trust what his men are saying or will he trust God? 
and his word and his promise. It's a moment that's going to be a turning point for David. If he chooses to believe what his men are telling him, that this is in fact a God-ordained moment and that he should kill Saul and take the throne, he's going to be guilty of murder. Saul was not attacking him at that moment. He was defenseless. And that's murder. Or will he believe God, trust God, wait for God, and let God work it out in his time? This is that moment. What about his men? Something needs to be said about his men. They, they're telling David, this is what God has said. This is the day the Lord said to you would come. Where are they getting that? You're not going to find that word for word anywhere. He didn't actually say it. Verse 4 of chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. David inquires of the Lord, and God tells him, I will give the Philistines into your hand. Now, he's going to save a little community known as Keilah, and he's going to go and do that, and they're under attack from the Philistines. He's going to go down and rescue them. So perhaps they're thinking that the Philistines, yes, they are their enemies. Saul is his enemy. Therefore, God promised he would give Saul into David's hands. But that's not what that meant. God specifically said the Philistines. There's another place back in Exodus where it is mentioned that God let him fall into his hand. Perhaps that might be what they're thinking in that moment. But God doesn't say that. At least in the context of 1 Samuel, he's not ever said this specific thing. So one group is ascribing this moment as a providential moment. God is here. God is acting. This is the way. Go. But what does God want David to do? How does he want David to use the situation? Does David struggle for a moment with the decision? Of course his desire is for the throne. Who wouldn't be? He's already anointed, like he knows he's on his way. But even bigger than that in this moment is the freedom from having to run for his life would be lifted. That burden would be lifted if he just killed Saul. But on this moment, we know from last, last time we were together, God's spirit rushed upon him when Samuel anointed him. And so David checks the sword and just cuts a piece of the robe as he snuck up on Saul unaware. But even by cutting the robe, if you look at verse five, you'll see David's heart and the conviction that comes upon him because of the choice he made. He took a corner of Saul's robe and verse five immediately says something about who he is and who God is in his, in his life. At least for a moment, perhaps David entertained a thought about Saul, about running him through with his sword. But verse five, right after he cuts the robe, afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Even that much struck his heart. The conviction of God was upon his heart just for that much of an act. We got two pictures. We got these guys over here saying, this is God, David over here trying to 
figure exactly out what, what he's supposed to do. J.D. Greer said, these guys over here on this side, his men and their minds, self-preservation and revenge are taking precedence over honor for the king. But in David's heart, he knows he's supposed to honor the king as the Lord's anointed. And this is what happened here. It's about grabbing what was not yet his to take. If he had run through Saul with that sword, he was grabbing for something, not caring whether it was right or wrong, taking it by force, not worried about whether it is right or is wrong. But his heart checked him. His conscience got to him. Think about that word conscience for a moment. Let your conscience be your guide. Well, yeah, kind of. I love the way R.C. Sproul described the conscience. He says, it's the built-in power of our minds to pass moral judgments on ourselves, approving or disapproving of our actions, thoughts, and plans, and telling us if what we have done is assessed as wrong, that we deserve to suffer for it. Paul wrote in Romans that God has written on everyone's heart, whether they've ever heard the gospel or not, He has written on everyone's heart a certain knowledge of God's law. But we also know that the conscience can be misguided. The conscience can be turned to understand evil as good and good as evil. The conscience can be seared with bitterness and hatred and what we see for Paul, uh, excuse me, for Saul and David is exactly that. On one side, we've got a man, Saul, who's desperate to kill David. He doesn't care if it's murder. Friends, he's so far from God at this point. He's so delusional and, and, and depraved that he's, he's chasing after God's anointed king, trying to take him out. And you've got David over here whose heart is so convicted that he just cut a corner of the robe off that he feels the conviction and the weight of that action in his heart. For the Christian, it's not enough to say, let your conscience be your guide. You let God's word be your guide and the Holy Spirit speaking through his word. Your conscience must be informed. Your heart, your mind must be informed and educated by the word of God, which is why Paul calls us to daily have our minds renewed by the word of God. So this is where David is. He knew the law. He knew it was against God's word to murder and dishonor Saul as king. Currently, God's anointed on the throne. His heart was sensitive to that. Saul, he seared to evil. What about you this morning? Where are you on that spectrum? So often we hear, I'm a good person. I try to do more good than I do bad. And often that's the answer when you ask someone, why would God let you into heaven? The real answer is, All of our hearts are seared toward evil and sin, short of the saving grace of Christ and his mercy poured out at the cross. Verse six shows us why David's heart checked him and he tells his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed twice He calls Saul the Lord's anointed. He knows he is not supposed to do this. But listen, so many times what we say is it boils down to this. I'll just take matters into my own hands. Someone wrongs us. Someone hurts us. We want to settle the score. 
We're going to fight fire with fire. We're going to seek revenge. And that reveals the heart behind it, which is the problem. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. Hurt people hurt people. But rather than letting God roll out his justice in time, which is always the right thing to do, we take that matter into our own hands in which we will always sin. And here we find David in this moment. His choice was to trust God, trust his timing, trust his plan, trust his purpose. That's what it looks like. Saul's got his 300 chosen men. David's got his four to 600 unchosen men. All Saul would have to do in this moment is yell, and his men are on the cave. David's gone, and his men. It's a slaughter. David's life is on the line especially in the back half of the story when he calls out to Saul and reveals that he was in the cave the whole time and now he's holding a piece of Saul's robe. But David did the right thing here. And what we need to remember is that doing the right thing isn't always easy, but it's always godly. Waiting on God to do his thing in his time is always right and it's always the godly way. Think about Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. What does it say? But they who wait for the Lord shall, what? Renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Strength to carry on. To mount up on the wings like eagles. Not seagulls, but eagles. Let's get majestic here for a second. Running without getting tired. Walking without growing faint. It is only found when we wait on the Lord. Just wait. David didn't grab the kingship that day. He didn't grab the throne that day. He's waiting on God. But it's unlike us to want to wait. We want instant gratification. We want sanctification in Christ, their Christ-likeness. If we could just put that on 30 seconds in the microwave of holiness and get done, right? Could we just move past this? That's not how it works. It takes a lifetime to get ready for eternity. Well, David confronted Saul and Saul confesses his sin, kind of. He goes out. You still see David in verse 8 using his manners. My Lord, the king, he bows down before him, calls him the Lord's anointed. I spared your life. Here's the proof. Why are you chasing after me? Would you please quit believing all the lies about me? They're not true. He would go on to say it. David's not going to take matters into his own hands. In fact, he says, may the Lord avenge me. May the Lord be the judge between me and you, Saul. David used that great old wisdom. Jesus did too when he said, you will know them and recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Does goodness come out of wickedness? No, it's not what David said, is it? Wickedness comes out of wickedness. Saul kind of comes to an understanding here, but it's half-hearted because it's not going to be long before Saul's chasing David again. But he confesses, David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me with good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You've declared this day how you have dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good what you have done to me this day. 
Well, the story concludes with David giving his word to Saul to not end his seed, his line on the earth, his offspring. David had already made that promise to Jonathan, and he'll keep it. He'll keep it through a little man by the name of Mephibosheth. But I want to spend our last few moments this morning thinking about waiting on the Lord. If you'll turn to Psalm 57, David wrote Psalm 57 when he was in the cave. This very, this very story, I believe, out of 1 Samuel 24 is when verse, uh, chapter 57, this song was written. David writes, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set, a, uh, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. As Christians, followers of Jesus, the church, we need to hear the word of God on this. Paul wrote to the church, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is what David was saying, Saul, may God be the judge between us. It's in his hands. There is, it has been for some time, I I think perhaps with COVID it began or the shutdown, maybe even longer than that. A current of mistrust, of unsettled hearts, agitation, frustration. We're just looking for somebody to take it out on. But we must wait on God to act. We must wait on God to call and descend. For our confidence is that at the right time and in the right way, which will be God's way, the God of vengeance will roll forth his justice like never before. And justice will be achieved. Can we see that in David? I do. And it's a New Testament truth for us to work into our life, to let God have his way. But when we think about waiting, what does it look like to wait? I think we find in David's song here just a couple of points to close out this morning. One is waiting means that we trust in the sovereignty of God. If you look at verse two, he says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Again, notice that David said, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. That is the heart of trusting in God's sovereignty which simply means that he has absolute and unrivaled rule over all of creation and our circumstances. David didn't say to God who fulfills my purposes, my dreams, to God who fulfills his purpose 
for me. Waiting also means that we cling to the steadfast love of God. Just like Ruth clung to Naomi, if you were here with us going through that story, just like a man clings to his wife when the two become one, we cling to the steadfast love of God. Look at verse three. He will send forth from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Friends, that comes in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That's where we find that steadfast love, that reminder that the gospel provides for us this assurance that God has, in fact, set out the one who saved us. He has put to shame those who trample on us, and he has sent out his steadfast love in his faithfulness, and his name is Jesus. We cling to the steadfast love of God as we wait. Some days that may be the only thing that gets you out of bed. Something, someday that may be the only thing that calms your heart and your emotions and your thoughts is the steadfast love of God. Three, waiting means that we focus on the glory of God. Look at verse five. It's all over this song, but in verse five specifically, he says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He repeats that phrase down in verse 11 as well. He's calling out in the cave being chased down by Saul, his life on the line, he is more worried about his glory over all the earth than his own life. That doesn't sound like a guy that's running for his life. Isaiah 26, 8 kind of says something similar. Isaiah said, your name and remembrance, Lord, are the desire of our soul. Waiting means we focus on the glory of God and not our circumstance. Finally, waiting means we grow in confidence of God's faithfulness. Look at verse seven. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. One, two, and three lead to four, a growing confidence in God's faithfulness. David knew that firsthand. Every time he defended the sheep of his father from a bear or a lion, when he was anointed and shortly after stood before all of these mighty men of Israel who were shaking and quaking in their boots because of Goliath, throwing off the armor of Saul because it was too big, taking five stones in a slingshot and slaying that giant in the name of his God. He knew God's faithfulness. Trusting in God's goodness, God's faithfulness, clinging to his goodness, clinging to his faithfulness, clinging to all of his godness, and we stand confident in Christ, and by grace through faith, we grow in that as we wait. Actually, it leads you to wait. It leads you to depend on him. Well, we see in David a man who rejected the shortcut to the throne, but did you know Jesus did also? Matthew chapter four is where Matthew recorded the temptation of Jesus and there the devil took him to a very high mountain, Matthew recorded, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
David didn't sidestep God's purpose in his life to get to the throne. Jesus didn't sidestep God's purpose for him on his way to the throne of glory. But what would have happened if either one of them had? More importantly, what would have happened had Jesus sidestepped? What if Jesus had sought a shortcut? Friends, we'd still be helpless, but he didn't. He didn't. And now in Christ, the road that Jesus calls you to is narrow. And nowhere in scripture did Jesus ever promise that it would be easy. He did say that he would make our our way straight, but it didn't say easy. It's a narrow road, and it takes great trust in the one who's already walked that road before us. For you see, there are no corners to cut, and he calls you to trust him and wait on him as he works out his purposes in your life. And thus we can sing like David, be exalted, O God. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth.